If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools, and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash APPS. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and whoever you are listening, thank you. So today, lots of stuff going on in the episode. Um, Megan Reck joins me to talk about a lot of things. We start off highlighting the emergency medicine pharmacotherapy with resuscitation or the Empower RX conference a conference that is for us and by us. So she and I discuss all the logistics and why we hope to see each and every one of the friends of the pod there in Austin, Texas on May 16th. Uh, We also get to highlight the sixth annual Critical Care Symposium. So that's a virtual conference uh, taking place on April 14th. Um, And then finally, the EM FarmNet, um, the Emergency Medicine Pharmacotherapy Research Network. So we have great virtual and in-person conferences upcoming that I love that we get to talk about on the episode. And then Meg and I to discuss uh, three emergency medicine clinical pearls with timely topics that include tranexamic acid, desmopressin, and rapid sequence intubation. Today's episode is fantastic, so there's no need to delay further. Uh, Let's get to Megan and I's interview. Now, joining me today, Megan Reck. She is a emergency medicine clinical pharmacist and the uh, research director for the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Loyola University Medical Center and co-founder of EM PharmNet. We could go on and on in our introduction here, but our Twitter handle, at Megan A. Reck, R-E-C-H, in case you were curious. So, Megan, hello, welcome. And you have to let us know, Did you survive the Chicago winter successfully? Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, actually, this winter, I I don't want to jinx us because we could still get snow and like another month of misery, but the winter hasn't been too bad. I agree. And we're, we're approaching summertime shy, which is the, the absolute best. There's no, if you haven't been, it is, it's, it's one of the best cities in in the whole world in the summertime. It makes up for the winter. I, I agree. 
absolutely. Everybody is outside every night. It's yeah, we definitely hibernate in the winter and then take advantage of all the city has to offer in the summer. Um, now we're, we're here for two things. So in the intro, I, I let the, the listeners know, but we're going to start with this awesome conference that we want to try to uh, shout from the mountaintops, let all the pharmacists know about, I mean, everyone in emergency medicine know about, I mean, then we're going to go into also in your wheelhouse and kind of hit on some emergency medicine pearls, kind of some quick hitters. We got three kind of topics that we're going to cover that have come out and have a little bit of discussion in the EM pharmacotherapy world. So let's get started. So Megan, the Empower RX conference, right? And that's the emergency medicine pharmacotherapy with resuscitation conference. So this, explain so it's taking place with SAEM. Give us give us a little bit of like what's happening with this conference and kind of the um, background with it. Yeah, absolutely. So last year was our first year to do this conference. Uh, and we decided to, last year to start small and kind of do it virtually. And our attendance was off the charts, way exceeded what we thought we would have. And it was really well received and everyone really enjoyed the conference. Uh, for anyone that was there, the chat was blowing up the whole time. I've never experienced a conference like that where people are interacting constantly throughout the day. And this is virtual um, And this year we decided- virtually, it was right? all virtual. Like, so that even, mm -hmm. like we're used to the virtual conferences where no one's, you're kind of just sitting back, right? Not doing anything. So you're, you have more people involved and engaged, right? So kind of the, the double bang there. Totally, it was, it was great. So we decided how can we take this and make it into an in-person conference because that seemed to be the thing that was missing uh, this past year. So we started looking around for venues and we decided the best strategy would be to pair with a national emergency medicine organization and try to use their conference space, uh, take advantage of the fact that pharmacists may already be traveling to that conference. And then also this conference appeals to more than just pharmacists. It's for physicians, it's for nurses, advanced practice providers, everyone uh, in the field, anyone that deals with emergency medicine and pharmacotherapy. Uh, so we decided to pair with SAEM because of the national EM organizations, they're the most uh, pharmacy friendly, if you will. They're sort of the most open to multidisciplinary collaboration. So that seemed to be the best fit for us. Yeah, uh, SAEM, the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine. And when you register for the Empower RX in person, right, you're also getting the SAEM annual meeting as well, right? So that's why you talk about appealing to both. You're able to, to do both. Now, you talked about the you wanted to go with a organization like SAEM that, that it welcomes um, and encourages kind of that multidisciplinary involvement. So why is this so important that we, that we're, we're putting this message out there that we, that we want pharmacists to register for this conference for empower RX in the same percentages as last year. And even in the same percentages, right. we think of the, of the bigger conferences, like, like mid-year ACP, you know, why is it important that we want this to get to that level? Great question. You think about, uh, the, specialties in pharmacy, like critical care, like ID, that are really well ingrained into clinical practice guidelines that have really progressive practice and are really organized. They have organizations like ID Week or through 
IDSA or the Society of uh, Critical Care Medicine, SCCM, which I've been really fortunate to become a part of. And SCCM being involved in an organization like that gives you so much professionally. It offers you a lot of leadership opportunities, a lot of networking opportunities, research. Uh, I could go on. And we don't really have a place like that that's dedicated to EM pharmacists. EM pharmacists can be members of SCCM, and many of them are, but that's really uh, dedicated to kind of taking care of the most acute patients in the emergency department, and we see the whole gamut of patients. So it's really important for us to get involved somewhere because we don't have a place right now like other specialties do. We recently demonstrated in a paper uh, that EM pharmacists on guidelines, it's really terrible. Byline authorship on um, clinical practice guidelines and official work part products for emergency medicine is uh, about 12.5% of work products have a byline pharmacist author, and those are only the ones that pertain to pharmacotherapy. We have a long way to go in emergency medicine pharmacy to get to where we need to in terms of multidisciplinary collaboration and increasing pharmacist presence on guidelines that pertain to pharmacotherapy uh, and being able to present uh, at a national level with our physician colleagues. We do so much with them at the bedside and that's not reflected at a national level like it is in a lot of other specialties. That's a really good point. You bring up the um, emergency medicine involvement in SCCM. This isn't a takeaway from SCCM. Love SCCM. SCCM, I participate in it, but you might do that because that's the that's the place you feel like is best for you. And there's not a whole lot of other options. And so uh, that's a, that's a really good point. And um, you know, that the, the, the paper uh, we highlighted that in the uh, December literature review series that, cause I, you know, you highlighted um, that uh, EM pharmacist um, authorship. I had no idea uh, that was kind of um, news to me as well. So I was, I was pretty surprised by all that. Um, now, um, you know, you mentioned that there's a in-person option that's going to be the, um, you'll get to do all of the conference stuff. And it's in Austin, Texas, right? I'm not sure we've said that. It's in a really fun spot. I'll give it to the EM yeah. world that like when they get something together, they make sure it's in a fun spot. Like I think of like the meme, right? You have Tiger Woods and John Daly. John Daly's the EM pharmacist. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I love yeah. it. Austin's a blast in May too, in May too, no less. But there's there's also a virtual option, right? If you're if you want to participate and it's, you know, very cost effective. And especially if you're a resident or student listening, it's it is about as cost effective as you can get to network and and listen to some of the um, best in the in the EM pharmacy world. Now We've hit on a lot of the things of the conference itself. Um, and if you're curious, I don't think we've given the website. It's EmpowerRx, so Empower, but then an X at the end, dash conference.com. So that's where you'll get a lot of this um, information. There's a lot of stuff on Twitter too and things. But other than um, the, the obvious, what can the listeners do to help support the cause, you know, in addition to, you know, registering for the meeting, supporting our, our fellow pharmacist colleagues? Of course, we would love to see you in sunny Austin, Texas. Bring your cowboy boots. Uh, and, you know, we'd love to um, see everyone there. Uh, if you can't attend in person, we totally understand. Uh, and we would love to have you virtually, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, if you can't attend either way, uh, then we would love for you to just have a voice at, as an EM pharmacist. 
just do what you can locally at your hospital, regionally, at a state or national level. Just get involved in something to try to push uh, practice forward. Yeah, and want to want to give a, a shout out. Um, you know, there's a this obviously. You know, Megan does. Uh, a huge part in all this, but it takes a crew, right, to be able to, to do a conference like this. So um, you got to give a shout out to Jimmy Pruitt, my, my podcaster uh, from the EM world, um, Farm So Hard. So he's been um, hard at work at this. Megan, obviously, you've been hard at work. Um, and then we got Kyle DeWitt, John Patka, Lance Ray, and Chantrell Johnson as kind of leading some of the crew here. So, I mean, round tables, pro-con debates, clinical pearls. This is how you know it's a conference that I'm in for. The happy hours on the agenda team. Okay. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And I will be I will be in Austin if this I don't I that hopefully that doesn't take people's interest away from going. Um, but I will I will be there. What's better than Austin? Now the question is, Megan, the only question that we have we have to pack, right? So what do the listeners choose if we're between cowboy boots or cowboy hats? What's your, what's your verdict? Oh, I don't know. I, uh, I don't think I'll be wearing either to be honest, <laughs> but you're more than welcome to. I think, you know, what you mentioned EM is our group is really fun. Yep. We're really casual. So don't feel the need to like wear a suit. Um, we are probably going to see Brian Gilbert in a you know 80s track suit or a romper or some kind of crazy outfit so uh we're up for whatever just bring yourselves and whatever you're most comfortable with and we look forward to a good time yeah the the feeling that you have if you went to SCCM in a t-shirt and shorts is the feeling that you'd have if you went full three-piece suit to the EM conference because make <laughs> exactly. pharmacy less formal that's uh, I completely agree with that so all all great things empower rx um, and again that date is May 16th in Austin Texas so you got plenty of time to register um, and there's tons of you know tons of awesome people so please get involved with that all right, now, Megan, let's drop some knowledge here. So I thought the best way to cover some emergency medicine things, right, is some heavy hitters and kind of quick topics, clinical pearl style. So we're going to go through three, and I want to start with TXA, right? I think that's part of the, um, on the emergency medicine kind of Swiss knife list. Um, but we're going to look at it for a fairly unique indication, right? And... We're going to look at TXA for epistaxis. So let me, and as we say this, people are like, wait, 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 wait. So how severe can this get? Because some listeners may wonder like, wait, 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 why are we talking about nosebleeds on pharmacy to dose today? Well, I think, you know, we try to put TXA on everything in emergency medicine. And one of the more controversial takes is using TXA for epistaxis because it, um, <clears throat> we have some inconsistent literature, first of all. Some studies show that it works. Some studies have had less favorable outcomes. Some studies show that it reduces packing or that it decreases length of stay in the ED. Uh, so we, you know, we try to put TXA on everything. And uh, at first glance, it may not seem like a very sexy topic, but it's actually a really common problem in emergency medicine. So... Why isn't TXA listed in the treatment guidelines if you talked about how, you know, it's been studied, it's been looked at, um, you know, where does it, where does it fall, I guess, in, in the algorithm per se? 
There are guidelines for epistaxis, but they're put out by ENT clinicians. And so I think some of the difference is because it's not an emergency medicine guideline, it's ENT, we have maybe more embrace of TSA in the emergency medicine world. Though it's funny because they do recommend interventions like oxymetazoline, which has really questionable level of evidence that's really old literature that bases that recommendation based on. Um, but there are a couple of randomized control trials that these 2020 guidelines cite uh, and a Cochrane review that showed less rebleeding. Um, so we have two RCTs, um, one in patients that are actually on antiplatelet therapy, um, and they found less anterior nasal packing and faster time to discharge with TXA compared to a placebo. Um, a Cochrane review showed less rebleeding. Um, but we've had some recent trials, the NOPAC study, for example, that did not find a difference in packing or other outcomes. Um, and then another recent study this year that showed less need for packing and reduced ED length of stay. So it's really inconclusive evidence right now, but TSA is a really low cost intervention. We're applying it topically, so there's really low risk in terms of adverse effects. So uh, it, it's something that we can try that may speed up ED length of stay and may prevent a painful procedure like, like getting nasal packing done. So we have mustard in Chicago, ranch in Indiana, and TXA in the ED. So we try to put it on everything. When did, when did they start looking at TXA for this kind of specific unique indication? The earliest RCT that I could find, a randomized control trial, was from 2013. So we kind of started with tranexamic acid in the trauma world, uh, looking at CRASH-2, and then our first randomized control trial was published in 2013, a couple years after that. All right. I always like the, to, to let the listeners learn from my, my silly mistakes. So I'm going to ask this question to save people embarrassment later. But how do you use topical TXA? And I ask this because the first time I got asked for it, says, hey, we need some TXA for epistexas. Can you go grab it? So I'm going to the Pixis. I'm getting it. In my mind, I'm like, well, where do we go from here? So Megan, what's our, what, what is the appropriate way to do it? And then I'll answer afterwards of, of how I attempted to do it. Sure. So I don't think there's a wrong way to do it necessarily. You take the TXA vial that you would draw for intravenous use and you soak about five to 10 mLs of that on a cotton swab or cotton flagette um, or some sort of nasal tampon. And then you just insert it up the nose and let it sit there for at least 10 minutes. Most of the studies use it for about 10 minutes. Uh, you use it undiluted um, or you can dilute it by a factor of half. Um, but yeah, pretty easy. You get it straight from the Pixis and uh, just apply it topically. Yeah, so it, it couldn't be easier, right, once you actually know how to do it. So what Slick Nick tried to do was to put it into a syringe and try to shoot it into the nose. You could do that with an atomizer, perhaps, I, but you want to hold it in place. Well, so. and, and, and 10 mLs in your nose was ambitious. <laughs> no, no, you really can't do that much. Yeah, you can do about one mL up the nose, and then you're just getting it all down the back of the throat. Yeah. So. 
so, so yeah, I wouldn't advocate for that approach. But nope, nope, definitely not. The 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 pledge it or swab or nasal tampon would definitely be the way to go. Now, why is preventing nasal packing such an appealing option? Like, what is like like why would that be something that we would want to avoid um, in these scenarios? Well, I think it's just really uncomfortable for patients. Like if you can imagine what the Rhino Rocket would be one of the um, packing kind of products, it's like a huge tampon that they stick up your nose. So we, if we can prevent that from occurring, then we're causing less discomfort for the patient. Uh, so that's, that's really the main reason. Uh, and there are some complications with the procedures, but uh, for the most part, it's just to minimize the discomfort associated with that. And then we're not even going to get into the antibiotic prophylaxis or not. We will leave that for another time or another date, but right. it makes sense why we would want to try to avoid that if possible. Now, for centers that have the capability, is there any role for like Tag or Rotem that can like help with um, truly trying to do some patient-specific thing? Or is that kind of too too specific for this kind of epistaxis or is it, is that kind of where we're heading for some of this stuff? I think it never hurts to use a patient specific approach. Um, I always advocate for using viscoelastic testing. However, when you're talking about an indication like a nosebleed, pretty routine, usually we can get it to stop with some minor interventions. I'm not advocating for doing additional testing on those patients when we have cheap and easy interventions like the oxymetazoline, like tranexamic acid that we can apply topically and hopefully get it to start, stop. Now, when you're talking about maybe it's a patient that has a life-threatening bleed, you can have life-threatening epistaxis. Uh, those are the patients where maybe we need to see what's going on. They could perhaps be on uh, an anticoagulant, uh, antiplatelet agent, dual antiplatelet agents, and then you want to kind of tailor therapy and look at that. So there, there is a role. There's always a role for assessing the underlying coagulopathy that's going on. But uh, for most of these cases, I don't think that you need to do viscoelastic testing. Yeah, this might be more for like the patient that's transferred in. They've tried TXA twice. We've tried packing. They've tried all these things and nothing has worked. It's still coming out. You're kind of putting your, putting your noggins in. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Megan, let's transition into the next topic. And this, out of all the three, I would say this is the one that I was kind of most excited to talk to you about, but it's DDAVP and antiplatelet-associated intracranial hemorrhages. Now, before we get into the evidence, what's even the mechanism for how 
DDAVP could actually help in this scenario? Right. This is definitely one of those fascinating topics in emergency medicine right now that everyone seems to have an opinion about. So DDAVP or desmopressin is one of those fascinating drugs that has a couple different mechanisms of action. What we're really interested in is uh, the fact that it modulates von Willebrand factor and factor eight. And so von Willebrand factor is important for platelet adhesion, um, which in turn is important for, uh, you know, clotting your blood. Uh, so it can stabilize that, and particularly in patients that are on antiplatelet agents, it may play a role in hemostasis. So that's a, a really good explanation um, into kind of the, the mechanism theory of, of why it would work. Now, explain to us why we have a dose controversy. Because to me, this is something like that I feel like I, I'll always hone in on of like, okay, we're using the drug, but are we using the dose that it was studied in, right? And I feel like desmopressin has different weight-based dosing, some caps, some don't cap. So let us know, like, what? why are we all over the map with some of these things? Um, and do we, is there, is there anything to help us kind of narrow our focus down into what we might consider the most appropriate one? I don't think we have a great answer to this dosing question right now. I will say the 2016... A neurocritical care society and society of critical care medicine guidelines they uh suggest consideration of des desmopressin at 0.4 micrograms per kilo in intracranial hemorrhage patients that are on an a, a baseline on an antiplatelet agent now i should highlight that this recommendation is based on two studies one of 13 patients and one of 14 patients and then a bunch of data that has been extrapolated from uremic bleeding and bleeding in the OR. Um, so since that time, uh, we've had other guidelines that come out in the AHA, ASA guidelines that don't really endorse this practice and say that more, uh, more research is needing. So that said, back to the dosing controversy, I just don't think that we have enough data that has conclusively looked at, is desmopressin even beneficial? for this indication, should we use it? And if so, what dose should we be using? So every institution seems to do something a little different, whether yes. you use 0.3 mics per kilo, 0.4 mics per kilo, whether you institute a dosing cap. I was pulling some colleagues uh, before this and some cap their dose at 24 micrograms, some at 30, some at 40. So there's a really wide variation in how much we're willing to give uh, for this indication. That was a really good, that was a really good non-answer answer. So I'm going to have to ask what <laughs> dose then do you, do you prefer since we have so many kind of wide ranges? If any, I guess, if any, do, do you have a preferred dose, I guess would be a, another way to phrase that. Yeah, I think my best answer is I don't really know that this is even indicated in all antiplatelet-related bleeding. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to say that there's a dose that's most appropriate. Um, I will say my electronic medical record defaults the dose to 0.3 micrograms per kilo. And given that our patients tend to be on the larger end of the scale, uh, that kind of usually ends up around 30 mics uh, of desmopressin. So I tend to not adjust it to 0.4 micrograms per kilo as the dose, uh, as the guidelines recommend. Um, but that's, so that's the practice that I've kind of adapted. 
So how would you how would you rate the the level of evidence that this recommendation is based on? Remembering right that these these guidelines were published in 2016, and it feels like the the world of reversal is we're in a whole new dimension from from what we were doing in 2016 with all the new um, data indications, agents, etc. The level of evidence is about as low as you can go in terms of guideline recommendations. Um, it was a conditional recommendation based on low quality evidence. So it's hard to, you know, go lower than that. Um, nonetheless, depending on where you work, uh, I know that th these guidelines were published and all of a sudden our neurosurgery uh, team was recommending desmopressin for every antiplatelet related bleed. So even though this is really based on shaky evidence, uh, you may see a huge uptake in use um, or routine use because, you know, we want to help our patients. And sometimes we do things that have really poor evidence just because we feel like we can do something to help them. So I think we're going to have to call this the limbo recommendation as low as we can go. Um, That's right. It, it's, you know, it, it's, it's another example of like, yes, in theory, it makes sense, right? Megan, you explained how physiologically like it could happen, it could help. But how many times have we seen things that physiologically make sense that don't work out? right? Time and time again. And so, um, you know, you mentioned, I found, so since the guidelines were published, you mentioned the, the whopping 27 patients. So I found three kind of retrospective studies looking at this since. Am I, am I missing anything or is that kind of, we, we kind of have small retrospective data looking at this and that's about it. Yes, we have, um, since that time, about three studies have been published, um, all of them retrospective and the largest study was 140 patients. So we still really have um, not a lot of evidence to support using desmopressin, especially given the inconsistent findings in these three studies. One showed a decreased likelihood of hematoma expansion, but the way that they defined that was uh, greater than or equal to three ml increase during the first uh, 24 hours. So the clinical relevance of that, you know, is pretty questionable. And then there's also the fact that they showed no difference in mortality, no difference in long-term functional outcomes like 90-day modified Rankin scales, which is, you know, when we're talking about um, stroke, we're looking at those long-term disability scales like modified Rankin, and they found no difference um, in those. So we really have taken this practice and implemented it with really shaky data. So we definitely need more high quality literature surrounding this topic. Megan, we absolutely need more high quality literature. And so going off of that, you know, I, I introduced in in your in the intro before you came on, I you know, you are the um, co founder of EM Farmnet. So what is that? And and then why am I bringing this up while we're talking about DDAVP and antiplatelet-associated ICH? Yeah, so thanks for asking. Um, EM Farnett, we founded in 2019, my colleague and I, Brett Saini, at the University of Iowa. Um, we looked around, and there weren't a lot of EM pharmacists that were coming together across the country to do organized research. So we decided uh, to start a research network where anyone that's interested in performing high quality research uh, across the country in a geographically diverse EM population um, came together. Uh, we have, it kind of fluctuates, we have um, roughly 15 sites 
maybe up to 20, depending, not everybody participates in every uh, study that goes on, but we have a number of ongoing studies uh, that uh, we're up to, I think, five or six that are in the works. So we've done a lot of work on since that time to do multi-center research across the country. Yeah, and if you're if you're curious, if you're like a visual person, you want to see more. So it's emfarmnet.org. And one of the cool things that I see on the website is you have a map of all the participating sites. So you can literally visually see it's from Vermont to Miami to Texas to California, Minnesota. Like it's just it it's it's not geographically restricted. It's truly and this is the you know getting rid of when we have data, the single center retrospective study and doing more of this multi-site research, right? I, multiple people that I've talked to seem to think that this is the future myself too. So getting ahead of this is, and getting involved in this is really cool. And if the listeners want to get in touch with the research team themselves, right? EMFarmNet at gmail.com, right? That's on their website, which again is the emfarmnet.org. Um, so that's really cool. And so, um, Back to this, the study that you're highlighting, right from the EM Farmnet group. What are what are you all looking at? Could you give us a Could you give us a little a peek of some of these of some of the methods and things from from your all study? So we are actually tackling this topic. We have eleven centers that have signed on to do this study and look at hematoma expansion uh, with desmopressin compared to patients that did not get desmopressin in antiplatelet related bleeding. And this turned out to be much more challenging than we anticipated because of the way that we're assessing the endpoint. We are looking at hematoma volume, so the actual volume on the scans, which requires uh, someone with uh, advanced capabilities in uh, assessing CT scans um, beyond our pharmacist capabilities. So every site has a radiologist, a neuroradiologist, or some other type of experts that can read these scans and tell us the hematoma volumes. So as I mentioned, we have 11 sites. We'll be presenting this data actually at SAEM. So stay tuned for that. If you're attending Empower RX, uh, we will be presenting our abstract findings there, um, our preliminary findings. We're looking at hematoma volume within the first 24 hours following ICH between patients that did or did not receive desmopressin, and then also assessing those long-term outcomes like modified Franken scale and National Institute of Health stroke scale or NIHSS at 90 days, uh, and then looking at things like mortality and length of stay. That's amazing. I hope those not involved with research understand the logistics and hoops that you have to go through to be able to have, like to get um, you know, a physician colleague to, to be able to do, interpret that at all these different sites. What an endeavor, um, starting all this, right. I'm assuming during or, or right after COVID as well. So like, yeah, awesome job. Um, I'm really, um, glad we got to highlight that because the, the work that the group is doing and, and, and continues to do is, is really cool. Um, and I think that's just, um, awesome from not only you and, and Brett out of Iowa, but also all the, all the different centers involved. Cause obviously you need, ship needs a captain, but you, you can't get there without all these other sites participating and helping um, and doing all that stuff. So kudos to everyone. That's really, really awesome. Now, is there any other, is there any other studies that we should be on the lookout in the future besides kind of keeping our ears peeled for those abstract findings at the uh, Empower RX? 
there is one randomized control trial that's underway that has enrolled, according to clinicaltrials.gov, they've enrolled uh, 54 patients so far, and I think they've completed enrollment. It's called the DASH study. And their primary endpoint was really more about feasibility and follow-up at 90 days. I'm not really sure how it's going to look when they publish their data, but that, that should be coming soon and should give us more information. And this at least a prospective randomized trial, though it's, it's got a small sample size, um, it should help us answer this question um, more definitively than what we have so far. So maybe by this time next year, we might actually have some some uh, some answers to this. I like it. And I'm very glad that it was called the DASH trial because I was worried if it didn't have an abbreviation, we were just going to have to ignore it. <laughs> How are we going to look at that? Right. <laughs> um, all right. The last the the last kind of topic I wanted to hit on that if you're on like the Twitter RX or Farm ICU on the social medias and things, you've probably seen this topic going around. But it's the the topic of awareness of paralysis, right? And so when we're talking about in RSI and you're paralyzed, but you you're awake, you just can't move, right? That's the the concept of that. So we will definitely get into the medication PKPD those contributions and things, but explain to us the RSI environment and why this can feel like a perfect storm and why why actually is this a, a phenomenon that happens in today that we have to really be aware of and um, work to prevent as, as pharmacists down in the ER? Right. This is something that as EM pharmacists, we encounter this scenario almost every day on our shift. You have a patient that can't maintain their airway or they're too altered or they need to be intubated for some reason. They are unstable oftentimes. So we have this whole team that assembles, including the physician team, the nursing team, somebody's writing things down, the respiratory therapy is there with the vent, pharmacy is there with the meds. Uh, the whole team is ready to go and we get the patient intubated, get them stabilized, and then everybody walks away right? Yep. <laughs> We're on to the next thing already. So that sets us up. If we have a paralytic, if we've used a paralytic that lasts for an hour, sometimes even more if you're using a higher dose, um, that sets us up for a scenario where we can have awareness of paralysis. And what that means is exactly what it sounds like. The patient is alert. They can hear. They can think and they can perceive everything around them, but they're intubated and they're paralyzed and they cannot communicate that. And that is associated with a lot of post-traumatic stress. It's very, um, very frightening for patients. And so we definitely want to avoid that scenario. And, and there's also the scenario too, where if you're in a busy ER, sometimes you're trying to do three intubations at once with the same team, right? So you're going from one to the other, or you're, you just finished one. And then the, the first patient you crash, now they're hypotensive. And so you're going like, it's, it could be a, a perfect storm there. I, I completely agree from that perspective. Now, what's our time window where, cause you know, I, I, you know, a lot of times with RSA, you kind of think of once you've given meds, it's like, all right, time zero, right? Now the clock has started. So when, if we're, if we're kind of keeping that stopwatch, when's the time window where we're starting to get pretty antsy and we're starting to get nervous? And, and for the, the seasoned pharmacists, they're, they're doing all the, the uh, nonverbal cues they can or verbal cues to make it known, hey, we got to get something on board here. What's that kind of time window? 
it really depends on the sedative agent that you use and the dose that you're using, right? Some of our sedatives are going to wear off as early as five minutes after you give it, five to eight minutes. Atomidate is great for that, right? It's really quick acting, uh, doesn't affect your hemodynamic profile much, and uh, it's quick off. So if we're using Atomidate, which we tend to do in the emergency department, uh, you're not only going to have five to ten minutes, really, of time where the patient is adequately sedated while paralyzed. And I think a lot of people who work in, in the in, in the emergency department, their number one fear is being a trauma one and getting your clothes ripped off in front of everybody, all your colleagues. <laughs> Awareness of paralysis is mine. I that is I like that is terrifying to me, that thought. So like this whole discussion like hits home here. Now, I say this because if you told me that there were two drugs that's similar efficacy, we're not I'm not gonna argue that right now, but if one drastically increased the odds of awareness with paralysis after RSI. And yeah, there is a little bit of safety differences, but for the most part, probably similar in a lot of patients. I would assume that we use the drug that has an incredibly difference in odds of awake with paralysis, that we use it pretty sparingly compared to the other agent. So explain to me why we still use so much rocuronium. Oh, that's such a good question, Nick, and such a big controversy in emergency medicine right now. Uh, so much that I'm giving a talk debating uh, this this very subject uh, coming up. And uh, wait, where's this talk? Wait, wait, wait. Well, put a, put a pause in my question. What's this? What's oh. this talk? Look at all the things Megan's coming on here, and I think she's got a whole. <laughs> look at this laundry list of promotions here. All right, so who? Where? What talk are you? What's You're just the, promoting uh, all my things? That's I love right. it. I um, love this it. Is at the the Tri-State Critical Care Symposium held at Rutgers University. I'm I'm debating myself on the best RSI paralytic to use. So one, that's challenging to do. So you'll have to tune in to see how we set that up. Um, and two, it should be a good time. There's a lot of really good speakers um, that I'm excited to tune into, like Aaron Barreto and Alex Flannery, some of my, my favorite people. So You're going to have to watch the Office episode where... Um like Dwight has to like do two jobs. That's what I thought of when you said you're debating yourself. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> uh, this is it's something that we've highlighted before on the pod. Sixth annual Tri-State Critical Care Symposium at Rutgers University. Um, so Friday, April 14th. Now, you're probably worried like, oh man, how am I going to get to like New Jersey on a Friday? Or like, nope, nope, it is virtual. And five ACPE hour credits um, like Megan said, friends of the pod all over. She hit Aaron, Alex, of course, Megan. And then, um, the host, the MC is none other than DePauly Dixit, who came on to highlight this previously multidisciplinary speakers. And it's a virtual conference for less than a hundred dollars. Like that's amazing. So registration closes April 12th though, if you want those credits. Um, and we'll have the link in the episode description to all these, to all these different things. So yeah, Megan, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a, um, always a really, a really great conference. Um, and I can't wait to hear you kind of debate yourself. Now, okay. Yes, now, now going, good. now I did set her up. This is like one of the most hot button topics in, in emergency medicine, rock versus sucks, but I interrupted you. So continue that, that answer there for us. Right. So, uh, so as you mentioned, this is super nuanced and everyone has an opinion about this. Um, our best alternative to rock is still 
succinylcholine, which is, of course, our depolarizing neuromuscular blocker. And given that it's depolarizing, it means it comes with adverse effects because you're opening up those acetylcholine channels. So that means you're going to have sodium going into the cell and then potassium goes out of the cell. So it raises your potassium by about 0.5 millicues per liter um, after a single dose. So that means that it's not appropriate to give succinylcholine to every patient, um, particularly those that may have hyperkalemia at baseline, so your dialysis patients, for example. And in the emergency department, we often don't have that baseline set of labs to go off of to know, you know, who is it safe to give succinylcholine to. So we have that issue. Succinylcholine also um, is associated with weird things like malignant hyperthermia, um, it's not great for patients with myasthenia gravis. Um, and on the rocuronium side, we now have Pregamidex, which, of course, is our reversal agent that binds to rocuronium and it, it essentially removes it, um, which is also extremely controversial as to where its place in therapy lies in the emergency department. Um, so there's a lot of factors to debate when you're talking which is the preferred agent, succinylcholine versus rocuronium. Yeah, bringing up Cigamidex, I feel like uh, the neurosurgeons just got a ding. They just got a little ding alert that we that we talked about one of their favorite <laughs> drugs. That's right. Um, now the let let us in on what tricks do you use to try and get the patient a timely sedative post RSI? I say that because it, it tips or tricks because um, yes. Like, of course, in most scenarios, you the smart pump's there, you set it up, you start the continuous infusion, but like we've described, that's not always possible. So do you have do you have tricks or things of that you could share of how you help make sure that people go um, and aren't just paralyzed and wake up screaming in the CT scanner? Yeah, definitely. I think that you not even every patient needs continuous sedation. You know, it's our That's a good practice yep. in emergency medicine to, you know, oh, the patient's intubated, let's get the propofol and fentanyl going, and then let's snow them until they leave the department. And now we have this issue with boarding patients for so long, sometimes days. And, you know, we really want to follow the PADIS guidelines. We want to initiate a now-go sedation. And I think the analgesia in that component often gets missed in emergency medicine. And we want to minimize and, and expose the patient to the most, uh, rather the least amount of analogous sedation possible to maintain uh, their comfort. So that being said, I think you can always start with intermittent sedation and analgesia. Just give them a bolus of fentanyl, if, if nothing else. If they're hemodynamically unstable, you don't, you know, you think you need to um, hold off on initiating propofol, that's fine. Just give them a bolus to hold them over, um, at least for the time that rocuronium is going to be on board. And then you can let them declare their sedation needs after the paralytic has worn off and after you have a better picture of um, what they're going to need. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good point about not necessarily needing continuous sedation that I a little small IV push can be our friend. I, I completely, I completely agree with that. That's a really, really great point. All right. So give the listeners one last plug on why everybody uh, needs to be registering for the empower RX conference. Well, I think that it'll be the first time that we have so many emergency medicine pharmacists in the room. We're also a great place to network. 
It's a great place for residents that are EM residents uh, to come together and network with other residents, to, to look for jobs, to talk to people across the country, and it's going to be a great time. It's going to be super fun. There may be a late night karaoke session. I don't know. I can't make Ooh, any promises, but okay. we, we could. We're, we're, our EM pharmacy crew is really good at uh, planning those karaoke sessions. So, so we'll see. That's a really good point for any job seekers um, because a lot of the opening positions are in the emergency department, um, whether it's nights, evenings, seven months, what have you. So um, being in literally the emergency medicine spot can can get you um, possibly a leg up with some of those scenarios. So that's that's awesome. Everybody, Megan Reck, I am so thankful for your time today. Everyone reach out at Megan A. Reck. Um, but really appreciate you. I'm glad we got to highlight all the amazing things you're doing for the emergency medicine, pharmacy, all the world's. Thanks so much, Nick. Now, a reminder, um, links to register for both the Empower RX conference and the Rutgers Critical Care Symposium are in the episode description. They'll be on my website and it'll get tweeted out. So uh, go support your pharmacist peers and colleagues, right? Virtual, in-person, tons of options. Um, as always, reach out uh, at Pharmacy to Dose, T-O to Dose, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Pharmacy to Dose at gbl.com. Um, and if you're looking to get in touch with some of the Empower RX folks, we gave you the websites, but um, at EMPRX23, Empower RX23. So until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.